That's our prayer, Father. Be at rest, O my soul. Be at rest once more. Father, I pray that whatever has happened in our weeks, that you would today grant us peace. That the King of Peace would offer that which he can offer us. Peace with you. Peace with one another. Peace within. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, the Society of International Law in London, they compiled a really big study on the topic of war. And they estimate that over the last 4,000 years, there have only ever been 268 years of peace. During this period, there have been 14,351 wars, both large and small. 8,000 peace treaties have been signed and then broken. And 6.4 billion people have lost their lives as a result. The most startling statistic they came up with is apparently if you take the value of property destroyed in all of these wars, it would pay for a belt of pure gold which wraps around the entire earth. This belt would be 97 miles wide and 33 feet thick. Now, if all those numbers are slightly baffling to you, what this tells us is that humanity is really good at making war. And we're really bad at making peace. But we all want peace, don't we? We're all desperate for peace. We, we want peace with others. It's, it's horrible, isn't it, knowing that someone doesn't like you or someone has it in for you. It's horrible living in a situation of fear or insecurity. We want peace with others. We also want peace within. I, I'm sure none of us here would, would say we're, we're the people we want to be. I'm sure none of us would say we're, we're fully dependent on God in all circumstances. We want peace with others. We want peace within but we know that ultimately to achieve those things, we need peace with God. We've been hearing over previous weeks how each of us, if you like, we've waged war against our creator. It's as though we've reached up and tried to snatch the crown off his head. And, and as though we've, we've tried to usurp his position of authority over us. But now we're kind of fighting amongst ourselves over who gets to wear this crown. So we're not at peace with one another. And even when we do get to put this crown on our head, it, it doesn't fit right. Something deep within us tells us that this isn't the way it's meant to be. We don't have peace within. Because we don't have peace with God. Now this is why last week's passage, Micah chapter 5, was such good News. You remember Michael was addressing Jerusalem in the midst of this horrendous siege situation. And that Micah, the prophet, he likened himself to a birth partner, trying to talk the city through the labor pains. Micah's been encouraging her to focus on a birth that is yet to come. To focus on a king who would be born in Bethlehem and who would give the people peace. Look down with me at verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4 in your Bibles, please. This is how we ended last week. The king, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, 
for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. The question we're asking today is how? How will the shepherd king, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, how will he help us to live securely? How will Jesus bring peace on earth? Because as we look around, clearly we don't have that yet. We've just been praying for peace. How will peace come? Well, the answers might surprise us. Our first point, you'll see on your handouts, is this. The shepherd king brings peace by raising up under shepherds. Look at uh, verse 5 again, the, the, the second bit of verse 5, if you would. Micah writes, When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. Now this is the news which Jerusalem needs to hear. Remember, they're under siege at this time and their king, Hezekiah, was useless. He was being slapped around the face with his own rod. But Micah points us forward to a day when the great shepherd king will raise up a perfect number of under-shepherds. And these under-shepherds, we're told, will not only drive the Assyrians off the land of Israel, but will actually go on the offensive and conquer their land, the land of Nimrod, which is Babylon and Assyria and that whole region. But we're faced with a bit of a problem. The problem with these verses is that in the pages of the Old Testament, this never happened. No king of Judah ever mustered an army which marched into Assyria and marched into Babylon, vanquished the enemy, winning peace for everyone back in Israel. It never happened. But it did happen in the pages of the New Testament. There we read how the Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd king, he mustered an army of believers, the church. He raised up under-shepherds, pastors, as we heard from 1 Peter 5, to lead them. And he calls his church to fight against his enemies, all in the pursuit of peace. Now, I don't know what you make of this sort of militaristic language. It, it, might, not, it might not sit well with us. But we have to deal with it because repeatedly through the Bible, Christians are called soldiers. We're not soldiers with guns and, and grenades and, and bombs. In mean, fact, if you remember, when, when Peter tried to pick up a sword to fight for Jesus, Jesus told him off and said, no, don't do that. My kingdom's not of this world. No, we don't fight with violence. No, our sword is, is the sword of the Spirit. Our sword is the word of truth. Our weapon is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a weapon which our enemy, Satan, cannot stand against. And it's a weapon no one can stand opposed to. As a church, we sometimes sing this song, O Church Arise. Do you know that one, O Church Arise? I love this line. It has, I won't sing it to you, you'll be, you'll be glad to hear 
Uh, but it has these words. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. But with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. See, throughout history, throughout the whole of history, whenever the church has been led by men of the word, enemies of the gospel have been toppled and people have been brought to peace with God. We celebrate this year the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And you might know that the story of Martin Luther, if you don't know the story, he's a guy who, who really, he started reading the Bible and he realized that the good news in the Bible was remarkably different to the news being shared by the papacy, by the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And he really was a hero of the faith because he started campaigning and said, no, we've got to stand up for what the Bible says. But this is what he wrote. I love this quote. Luther said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote the word of God. Otherwise, I did absolutely nothing. And while I slept or drank beer with my friend Philip, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did everything. There's enormous pressure these days for church pastors to be so many things. Book after book after the book comes out. We're all expected to read them. Telling us we need to be businessmen. We need to be psychiatrists. We need to be social workers. We need to be advertising experts. But first and foremost, church pastors are to be teachers and modelers of the word of God. We shepherd God's people not by the force of our personality or by innate power or by authority or by impressiveness. We shepherd by living and speaking the word of God. So please pray for your under-shepherds. Please pray for those who teach and preach God's word here. Pray that we would personally live out what we're saying. Pray that we aren't distracted away to other concerns. And we should pray that this church would continue to raise up more and more under-shepherds for the blessing of, the, of God's church, the army. So there's our first point. The shepherd king brings peace around the world by raising up under-shepherds to lead his people into battle. But our second point. The shepherd king brings peace by sending his remnant among the nations. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7. I love these words. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. If you've never travelled to the Near East, you'll know that it's, it's really hot. And it's, it's really dry. That probably won't come as a surprise to you. <laughs> Apparently from June all the way through to September, there's no rain whatsoever. So the only thing which keeps vegetation alive is, is the dew, which would form each morning on the ground, which would collect in beads on the grass. That people were utterly dependent on that gracious provision from the Lord. Otherwise, all their vegetation would die. And that's, that's kind of 
what the church is like here. Wherever we are around the world, just like the nation of Israel were designed to be a blessing to all the nations, so our purpose is to bring life and sustenance to our communities. As the gospel goes around the world, it doesn't just bring peace to individuals, it brings peace to entire communities. It sanctifies entire cultures. The Times columnist Matthew Paris wrote about this sort of idea a few years back. He, he described himself as a, I think he described himself as a committed atheist and a, and a homosexual campaigner. But he, he just wrote this article upon returning from a trip to Malawi. Uh, if you're up for listening to this quote, he says, As a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. This can my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that it, there is no God. It's a great quote, isn't it? Just, just stop and think for a moment. What other worldview produces that sort of effect in the world? Building orphanages, hospitals, schools, all for people who are unable to pay. Repairing marriages, adopting unwanted children, creating just laws. It's been argued again and again by historians that the fundamental cause of stability in the West, politically and economically, the fundamental cause is the Christian worldview which undergirds it. Because the gospel brings peace, not just to individuals, but to entire cultures. What then do we do with verses 8 and 9? Problem verses. Look at verse 8. It begins the same way. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can escape. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies. And all your foes will be destroyed. So you notice here again, the church is among the nations. But, but instead of bringing refreshment and renewal like the Jew, here they ravish and ruin like ferocious lions. So we've got a problem. How can the, the gospel of peace both bring life and death at the same time? Well, there's a similar paradox in Luke's gospel. Alex began our service earlier with that, that reminder of what the angels announced at Jesus' birth. Do you remember how they announced that Jesus would bring peace on earth? Sounds great, doesn't it? Yet 12 chapters later in the same gospel, Jesus says, no, I've not come to bring peace on earth, but division. How do we work out that paradox? Well, yes, Jesus did come to bring us peace with God, to end that stupid war which we've waged against our creator, snatching the crown of his head. He's come to end that war. 
And wherever the gospel is, this gospel of peace is, is embraced and accepted, we should expect to see lives and cultures being transformed. But the reverse is also true. Whenever the gospel of peace is rejected, we should expect to see lives and cultures, entropy and decay. And we're beginning to see something of that here in the West, aren't we? In such dark times, though, in such dark times, the gospel shines all the greater. Apparently around 150 AD, that's just 120 years after Jesus died. Uh, paganism was the religion of, of the Roman Empire at this time. It was illegal, illegal to follow Jesus. You'd be fed to the lions and the such. But there was a man called Tertullian. You might not have heard of him. Tertullian, he lived in Carthage in North Africa. And he was a great defender of the faith. And, and he wrote this to the emperor. He observed that uh, the gospel was just uh, spreading like wildfire throughout the empire. He wrote this to the Roman emperor. Brilliant quote. We Christians are but of yesterday, yet we have filled every place among you. Cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, camps, tribes, town councils, the palace, the Roman Senate, the forum. We have left nothing to you except the temples of your gods. We can count your armies. There are a greater number of Christians in just one Roman province. Even unarmed, and without any uprising, merely by standing aside, simply through withdrawal, we could have fought against you. For if such a multitude of people as we are had broken loose from you and had gone into some remote corner of the earth, the loss of so many citizens, of whatever kind they might have been, would certainly have made you blush with shame. You would have been terrified in your loneliness at the silence of your surroundings and the stupor, as it were, of a dead world. What a lad, writing that to the Roman emperor. Well, who could have dreamed that out of a tiny remnant of a besieged city in Judah would come forth a people who would encompass the entire world? Who could have dreamed that from the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on a Roman cross could have sprung such a mighty army armed with a gospel that has the effect to bring life or death, peace or war. Friends, this is the calling of the church. This is the calling of St. John's. And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, it is your calling it's not an optional extra for the extra keen Christian or people with certain gifts. Jesus calls his church to fight the good fight. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. So the shepherd king brings peace by sending his remnant among the nations. On our third point, finally, the shepherd king brings peace by destroying the idols of his people. So this might surprise us. You see, in the last point, we saw it, 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 the world out there, they need peace. But, but here we see the world, the, the enemy isn't just out there. It isn't just the world which needs peace. The enemy's within. It's in me and it's in, in you. We need peace. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. 
In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. Upon reading that bit, you might think, oh, that sounds like bad news. That sounds like really bad news. But remember, we're in the happy bit of Micah. This is good news. I want to persuade you, this is actually really good news. Because our Father is determined for his children to believe in him alone. So he's in the process, if you like, of removing our idolatries, our self-securities, and our dependencies on other things. Last week, I, I told you the story of Tiani Butters. If you were here, you might remember that. She was a, a young girl. I think she was 19 years old. She, she got horribly addicted to crystal meth. Wonderfully, though, her dad came and saved her out of that drug den. Remember, he had the axe in hand. He hacked down the door. He burst his way in, and he tore her out of that place. He saved her. He was determined to get his daughter safe. But the battle wasn't over once they got out of the drug den. He put her into rehab. And there, the, the painful process of removing her drug dependency began. It's a painful process of detoxing what she had been relying on. For Judah, in these verses, that meant removing her military machine you might remember from chapter 1, the city of Lachish, the fortress town of Lachish. They thought, well, who needs God? We've got our chariots, we've got enormous towers and, and walls, we don't need God. And so when Assyria came tearing through, God made sure Lachish fell. You can go to the British Museum and see the remnants of it. God wanted, to see, wanted his people to see they have to depend on him alone. I wonder what what might our strongholds and our chariots be? I guess it could be anything which we place our security or identity in outside of our creator. And let me think about it this week. I think it's actually quite hard to work out. It's quite hard to put your finger on. Mm, yes, that's, my, that's where I put my security. It's often only when we lose something that it kind of comes to light. So, for example, we only see that we've been putting our security on our stocks and shares when, when the market crashes and our heart breaks. We only see that we've been placing our security in our, in our position at work and our employment when we lose our job. We only see our security as placed in our prestige and what people think of us when we publicly lose face or publicly mess up. Every time we suffer or face a knock or be, are a setback somehow, we should be willing to ask ourselves, what area of self-security is God exposing to me? But notice, God doesn't just want to remove our self-securities. He also wants to remove our idols. For Judah, that meant destroying her witchcraft and divination. That was the way in which they tried to forecast and, and control the future. 
And also, he says he's going to destroy her Asherah poles and sacred stones. These were the kind of sites where you'd uh, go to have sex with a cultic prostitute in the hope of being made more fertile. Now, you might think, oh, that sounds all rather primitive. We don't have idols like that today. But, but actually, there's a strange correlation between that and, and our idols. Perhaps we, too, are, are desperately trying to forecast and control our futures. Um, I don't know, bowing down to our children's education, bowing down to our health plan, bowing down to our savings account, desperately forecasting, controlling what is ahead. Perhaps we, too, are worshipping the cult of fertility, believing that our cultures lie, that, that sex and, and marriage and children will solve all of our problems. I don't know, what are idols? If, if those don't hit the mark for us, I've, if you're up for this, I've got four diagnostic questions that, that we might ask ourselves to try and work out what, what our idols might be. Uh, four questions. Firstly, what do you habitually daydream about? That, that is, where, where are you looking for your joy? your purpose and your satisfaction? What do you daydream about? Uh, secondly, what are you furious about being denied? Uh, you know, Jonah, he was angry, wasn't he? He was angry with God. Well, what is it that makes you furious or angry when you're denied it? Uh, thirdly, what are you addicted to? Uh, what is it that you feel unwilling to give up, even though you know it's probably the right thing to do? What are you addicted to? And a fourth question, what is it that you spend your disposable income on? Now, it's been said, hasn't it, that, that a Christian should have a distinctive bank account, a distinctive bank statement. Well, where do you spend your disposable income? It's a good question as we, we approach our gift Sunday, the 19th of March. See, idols, our idols, they, they promise us so much, don't they? They promise a great deal. They promise us peace. They promise us security. They promise us identity and life and enjoyment. But just stop and think, what do they actually deliver? What, what do they make true on which they've promised? You see, like Tiani Butters in her detox in rehab, this process of losing our dependency will often be really quite painful. And it's going to look different for each one of us because I guess all our idols are different. But I guess in the very midst of that pain, we must always remember the reason for it. We have a father. We have a father who is preparing us to come home with him. And this process, which is beginning now, it will be completed fully on the day that Jesus returns. It's going to be a day when we'll be made fully obedient with a whole heart and a whole of our mind and, and, and the whole of our strength. It will be a day when God will be our sole chief joy, our chief glory. It will be a day when we can enjoy peace and security with our King forever. Early last century, two Christian ministers were having a holiday together at walking in the Scot Scottish Highlands. And, and there they came across a, a young, young lad who was looking after some sheep. But um, they waved them over, but he didn't hear them. They soon realized he was, he was a deaf mute. And, and they thought, no one's, no one's probably explained the gospel to this young lad. 
And so they sat down with him, and I think of it, the process of an hour at least, they're trying to sort of, sort of use charades and sort of hackneyed sort of uh, sign language to try and communicate the gospel to him. They, they taught him just one verse from the Bible. Um, the very first verse of Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Just, just five, five words, the Lord is my shepherd. And through sign language, they managed to communicate the gospel. They said, the, the God is the only one. The Lord, he, he's the ruler of all. Is, the Lord is. He's, he, our, our trust in him is a present tense thing. It's not, not something we did on a youth group 14 years ago. It's, it's a present tense trust. The Lord is my, he's my shepherd. He promises to be my personal Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my loving, self-sacrificial saviour. And so through sort of sign language, and, and they managed to communicate this gospel to him. And, and they left that boy that day with that understanding of the gospel. Tragically, six months later, the boy was up on the hills. He was looking after his sheep, and there was a rock slide. And he was completely subsumed by boulders and gravel. And when the villagers finally managed to dig the boy out from under the rocks... They found him holding on to his fourth finger. The Lord is my shepherd. Apparently this story was um, retold in, in a church near where the boy lived. And, and when the story was being told, the rather proud MP was visiting that day, as, as MPs do. They, they sort of uh, came in and wanted to be seen. But he heard this story of this young lad. And that day he gave his life to Christ. And 30 years later, when that MP died, they found him clutching his fourth finger. The Lord is my shepherd. Both he and that boy died at peace with their creator. As I close, may I ask, is the Lord your shepherd? Do you have that peace? So that whatever rock slides happen in your life even through death you know you're right with your God do you have that peace if not please today would be a great day to put your trust in that saviour in that great shepherd of the flock and if, if that's you please come grab me afterwards I'd love to hear your questions I'd love to explain more about what it would look like to put your trust in him I won't use sign language I'll, I'll, use, I'll use words as best as I'm able is the Lord your shepherd? If he is your shepherd, will you listen to what he's been telling you today? If you know this peace with God, if you're undergoing this process of having peace within, will you make it your personal mission to bring this gospel of peace to others? Let's pray. The Lord is my shepherd. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death on the cross. And as we prepare now to come to your table to remember and celebrate what your great king has done for us, give us peace, we pray, both now and on into this week. In Jesus' name, amen.